0: On this episode of the SSR Podcast, my guest Maddie Boardman and I are in full girl talk mode as we come back to Megan McCafferty's 2001 book, Sloppy Firsts. Sloppy Firsts is the first in a series about high schooler Jessica Darling, who we meet in this book as an overachieving sophomore brainiac, totally heartbroken that her best friend Hope has recently moved away in the wake of her brother's heroin overdose. Sloppy Firsts plays out in a series of letters written to Hope from Jessica, updating her on everything that's happened at Pineville High School in her absence. There's the Clueless Crew, a trio of seemingly well-meaning girls named Bridget, Manda, and Sarah, who Jess tolerates with Hope Gone. There's the drama that ensues when City Girl High comes to town and later when Manda sleeps with Bridget's boyfriend, Burke. There's the pressure Jessica gets from her dad to be the fastest one on the track team and her strained relationship with her mom, who's uber-focused on her other daughter's upcoming wedding. And, as is the case in any high school story worth reading, there's the complicated love interests. Scotty, the boy next door who loves Jess unconditionally, Paul, the dreamboat senior, Pierre, the love struck freshman, and Marcus Flutie, the one-time bad boy who works his way into our protagonist's angsty heart. Sloppy First has about as many ups and downs as you might expect if you've survived high school yourself, and it's worth noting up front that the book includes frank discussions of sex, drugs, and suicide. These topics are mentioned in the episode you're about to hear, so be prepared to hit that fast-forward button or to come back next week if these are sensitive subjects for you. It won't take long for you to catch on to the fact that Maddie and I are longtime besties, but here's what else you should know about this week's guest. Maddie Boardman is a Seattle native, a Brooklyn dweller, and the email marketing manager at The Wing, which is the women's only community and co-working space that I'm totally obsessed with. She loves pickles, naps, and her golden retriever, Pup Slider, who may or may not make a guest appearance in our interview. Follow her on Instagram at mboardman and on Twitter at ml If you haven't yet, please don't forget to hit that handy subscribe button wherever you're listening to the show and to submit a review on iTunes if you're loving it. Those reviews make a big difference as I try to get the word out about SSR, and I really appreciate each and every one. Thanks in advance. Now let's go to this show. freelance writer lifelong bookworm and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles so find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine we're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the ssr podcast hi maddie thank you so much for joining us on ssr hi al (laughs) i'm so glad that you decided to come on and i can't wait to talk about sloppy firsts with you
1: I'm so excited. I've been dying for this podcast to come out. And it was such a good opportunity for me to go back to the books of my youth and skip back in that headspace.
0: Yeah. So let's jump in. Why did you pick sloppy first? When I asked you to be on the show, it was almost instinctual. you were like, well, we have to do sloppy first. So tell me about like your background with this book and why you wanted to come back to it.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think it's such an interesting book because it does not have the kind of glory and name recognition of Princess Diaries, a babysitter's club, like any of the big books from when we were younger. It also came out, I think, in 2001. Yeah. So I think I read it like right when it came out, which is kind of rare for the YA books of that time. But it was so funny to me because I had such an emotional attachment to it. And in telling people I was doing this, like I mentioned it to our friend Sophie and mentioned it to a couple other people, And I was surprised by the number of people who had read it. I kind of assumed that no one else had. And I was like, oh, it's this weird book about Jessica Darling. And there's four of them. And this, that, and the next thing. Sorry, Slider, barking. maddie has
0: got Slider. It's fine. He's my friend, too. So it's all
1: (laughs) right. He has a lot of feelings about this book, clearly. (laughs) But yeah, so that my first thing was just that it was the book that stuck with me the most in terms of the plot and in terms of the subject matter. And we had talked about this a little bit and can get into it further, but the idea of the book that you're not supposed to read was really interesting to me and wanted to go back to it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I I agree with everything that you've said. I echo it all. I think what's kind of interesting is that the, the sense of who this book is for, I think is interesting to talk about because I kind of had a hard time, like even researching about it, nailing down exactly who it was intended for. Interestingly, it's published by an adult imprint Hmm. Um, so I think that's like interesting to note. It's published by Three Rivers Press, which is a division of Crown Publishing, which is not a young adult or a children's imprint. Hmm. Then at the same time, like all of these websites, including some of the sites noted by the author Meg McCafferty, um, refer to it as young adult. So it's like kind of a funky book. In the last few years, there's been this kind of like subgenre that's come out called new adult Mm -hmm. Um, that I think has been more like late teens, maybe early twenties. And I feel like maybe this book fits in there, but that wasn't really a thing back then. So it's hard. It's a kind of a confusing book. And I think
1: that that might be partially why it felt like not a lot of people were reading it. I don't have the impression that it was a huge commercial success. I might be incorrect. But yeah, it definitely didn't garner the name recognition when we were at that age, for sure.
0: Yeah, I think it picked up steam over time. I did find that the series as a whole was a New York Times bestseller. So I wonder if like over the course of each subsequent book, you know, maybe they got more publicity for each one. And then people returned to book one, book two, and and it picked up steam over time. I don't know that I read all of
1: them. Do, Do you remember I did. And that was, the, that was the thing that was maybe most interesting to me rereading it because I had complete, I had no delineation of where sloppy first ended. And I think it's second helpings and something or other thirds and so yeah. on pick up. And so I had like, I remembered things about Marcus Flutie and remembered things about their relationship that when it ended I was so surprised because I was like, oh, what about all these other things? So it had completely just meshed in my head as one complete story. So that kind of threw me off as I was reading it.
0: Yeah, it's weird. I've had that experience with a few of the books that I've read for the podcast, um, either with like sequels or with movies, because I keep expecting for something to happen as part of this like rereading experience. And then I'm like, oh, this like major event or this major part of the ending felt like it should have been central to the plot and then it never happened. And it kind of like throws you off your game.
1: It totally skews your perception because you almost get mad at the book when the book is what it always was. You're the one that's changed your view on it, not the book.
0: Yeah, no, I totally agree with you. So you read this book right when it came out. It was published in August 2001. So you were like 11, 12?
1: Yeah, going into my first year of middle school. Okay. The summer before middle school, which is like such a specific time in your life. That is. So Yeah, so I would have been 11 going on 12. Okay, I think I
0: read it maybe a year or two after it came out. I don't think I was 10 or 11 when I read this book. This book would have completely blown my mind when I was 10. Like, I wouldn't have known what to do with it. And I remember reading it and thinking... That it was like a little out of my comfort zone, but I think if I had been reading it at ten or eleven, I would have like lost my shit completely. <laughs> been
1: like I can't read. This. Yeah, I was a pretty
0: innocent kid. Like there's a lot of, co- I mean, I you know I hate to be like content with a capital C, but like there is like <laughs> there's is, a lot of is. content with a capital C in this book. There's like sex, drugs, oh yeah, drinking. I mean, it's all here. Besides,
1: oh, you know? yeah. So that summer, I had broken my leg, and so I was like folded up in my house all summer long with a cast because you don't want to be like you know running around summer as a teen with leg cast and crutches. So all I did that whole summer was read, and I have like I can literally get in my head into my tiny little bedroom in my parents' house in Seattle, and I can like picture sitting on a beanbag chair with that book and like. Remember being like, I really hope my mom doesn't see this. Yeah, that she doesn't pick up and see what I'm reading because, like, I'm gonna be in big trouble. Yeah, like thinking I'm gonna get like my TV privileges taken away (laughs) or whatever it was. Like it was gonna be bad if she saw what I was reading.
0: Yeah, well, this book it's like an interesting trim size. Like it's it's a little bit bigger than your average paperback book. So I I do have distinctive memories of reading it. And I I think I was on vacation with my family when I read it. And I remember being on the beach and like kind of trying to angle the book like away from my parents and my little sisters because I just like didn't want them to know what was happening in it I mean even the cover like there's a little bare leg action going on <laughs> it's a little suggestive I mean I don't the cover doesn't make that much sense to me like in the context of the book this isn't how I picture Jessica Darling looking so. No. Um so like the packaging is like a little funny to me. But yes, I had that same experience of being like, I don't think I'm supposed to be reading this. And the fact that like my dad is a few feet away. Yeah. Sorry, dad, if you're listening, I was, I was <laughs> totally reading this book and I shouldn't have been. Um, I was definitely like, hiding it from him.
1: Well, and it's so funny because I'm sure my parents, being my parents, they probably wouldn't have wanted me to read it. Yeah. But it is one of those things where you're like, okay, you're a good kid and you're spending your free time reading. How bad can it be? Yeah. (laughs) It can't be that dangerous for you to be reading it. Yeah.
0: I have to assume that my parents generally reach that conclusion with me because all that I did was read. So at a certain level, they probably were like, how bad can it be? Yeah. If it's a book. You're not reading, like, romance novels with Fabio on the cover. No, that I never did. And I don't know that I ever will. I think uh, I'm going to skip that phase entirely still. <laughs> so what was your first impression diving back in? Like, those first few chapters, what was the experience of coming back to Jessica Darling's world life?
1: So interestingly, I think I had compartmentalized the death of Hope's brother. Mm-hmm. That was like the one thing that I had just completely forgotten about. And I don't know if it was that I was young and like not emotionally prepared to internalize that or if the romance with Marcus Flutie just superseded everything. Yeah. But that like genuinely shocked me because I knew Hope and I remembered Hope had moved away. But when she started getting into the death of her brother, I was like, holy shit, like this is really heavy and really intense and like OD'd at what? Sixteen, seventeen. Yeah, he was really young. And it was within the first few pages of the book. Yeah. It's really like you get right into it. It's super jarring. And like it was way before opioid academic and way before all yeah. these things that are now part of the cultural conversation. So uh, that like completely threw me. Yeah,
0: it was uh, like, a heroine. Like at the time I read this book, I'd maybe been aware of people smoking pot at my school like the idea of heroin was so foreign to me and I think maybe the fact that it was so foreign made it feel a little bit less serious because it felt like it wasn't a real thing it was like interesting oh there's this thing called heroin and I sound so naive you know I was raised in suburban Pennsylvania but yeah I mean it felt so like out of my realm of understanding that it was like oh, this isn't, maybe it's not so serious. Like, this can't be real. But obviously now, seeing all of the issues that have taken place, issues with addiction in my own circle, and then the opioid epidemic and all of those things, has obviously, it sobers you a little bit reading a book like this. And And then understanding what an effect it can have, even on somebody Jessica Darling's age, who's like now lost her best friend as a result of her family being rocked
1: to the core by Heath, her brother's overdose. Yeah, and I remember as a kid totally relating to her frustration of Mm -hmm. like, how dare they move away? Like, this is so unfair. This is so frustrating. And now, of course, with the perspective at the age that we are, you kind of look at it and you're like, of course they moved away. Right. Like, you can't just go on like life is normal after that. And for the sake of your daughter's best friends, stay in this town where all these horrible things have happened. But it was kind of a lot of the book, honestly, for me, was very Sex in the City in that when you watch Sex in the City as a teen, you're like, fuck Miranda. She's so annoying. Like, she's so boring and Carrie's so great. And then you rewatch yeah. it later and you're like, OK, this is exactly wrong. It was the exact same thing for me, where at the time I was like, oh, like totally gay. Jessica darling and like Hope's parents are so annoying. And in retrospect, you're like, okay, no.
0: (laughs) Right. Like every, they were doing the right thing. And (laughs) Jessica needs to like be a little bit less concerned about herself. Exactly. Exactly. Do you think in general, was Jessica like just the right amount of angsty or was she whiny and like negative to the point of being unlikable and I know likable is a tricky word and I'm I'm still kind of figuring out in all of these conversations like what word might be better to use yeah but is her like sense of being so jaded and so cynical does it go beyond what you would
1: normally call just like angsty teenagerhood that's such an interesting question I think like given Everything that was going on in her life, like mm-hmm. given how heavy all this shit was, yeah. I kind of think yes, because she wasn't angsty about these people overdosing and the death of her brother. She was angsty about Paul Parlapiano not looking her at her in the hallway. Yeah, and I know that's like how your brain functions when you're a teen, and I'm sure we did the exact same stuff. But that's a little hard to be like, okay, get some goddamn perspective, and like this is not the issue at hand here, right? Like, <laughs> like pull you your have shit much together fish to fry in your life so that I do think it was like bordering and I will say like if anything she didn't feel relatable to me oh like I was yeah like I was not an angsty teen I was I never had an emo phase like it just wasn't me and that may just be my own experience but there was no part of me that was like oh yeah like classic early high school like sitting in my journal like writing about shit that made me mad like that that was not a shared experience that I had with her yeah,
0: and there were moments where it seemed like she was self-aware that she was, like, miserable, and there are moments when I was like, okay, at least she knows that she yeah. is in this rut and can't get out of it, but I couldn't decide if that made it okay, just because she knew.
1: It's almost more frustrating, because, mm-hmm. like, you have the wherewithal, and, like, you're smart enough and have a, enough view of the world to, like, realize you're doing this, so, like, stop it. <laughs> yeah,
0: especially because, like you said, she's dealing with such big issues, and, like, even the fact that that years before her parents had lost their first kid like you would think that she maybe would have a better grip on like what to allow to upset her within the context of her family like this is a family that's clearly been through a lot yeah and at the risk of sounding like her mom who's constantly (laughs) like railing about perspective and the importance of having perspective like I think this girl like definitely needed some perspective (laughs) 100% 100% I very much agree <laughs> Which like And shout out to my mom My mom <laughs> Was very big On perspective Growing up And so I Totally related To Jessica's frustration About this pep talk About perspective And I can say this Because my mom And I had many conversations About how I felt About this But um, I highlighted One quote Where <laughs> Jessica says When mom isn't pretending I am her beloved firstborn She has given me Lectures on life One of her favorites Is called Get some perspective Which was one of My mom's favorites too <laughs> My mom has always been very big on perspective even more so lately what always pissed me off about her whole perspective spiel was that she was writing off my feelings at that moment it's not my fault that these are the problems i've been put on in this earth to deal with right they're petty they
1: piss me off and they're all mine interesting that is a really good quote because that's the awareness factor that's her realizing that like yeah she needs some perspective but it doesn't make the Paul piano longing any less shitty in the moment
0: well and she I mean she's the first in her class we are told and she's like obviously very smart and I think she's pretty like emotionally intelligent too like she gets a lot of the things that are happening around her she just doesn't necessarily want to rise to those occasions and like be a better person I think that's fair so something else that I think is interesting for you and I to talk about is the premise. Of the book being that Jessica is communicating with her like long distance best friend, yeah. Because for context, for <laughs> listeners, um, Maddie and I met, and this is like major nerd alert here. But Maddie and I met at journalism camp the summer between our junior and senior year, so a little bit older than jessica darling in this book and yeah yeah and we were long distance best friends for a couple of years and we didn't write snail mail but i definitely like had a lot of moments relating to this relationship where like jessica was just trying to figure out a way to communicate with her person even though her person was no longer like part of the day-to-day happenings of school and it was sort of a fitting book for us to read i think and to talk about
1: yeah it was so interesting to me because like just the technology change because 2001 not that long ago but Once again, dorky and um, apologies in advance. Allie and I wrote what was then called plain letters to each other, which was you would write these like very tortured, emotional letters about, you know, you've meant so much to me and we'll always be friends and like love you forever. And somehow magically in our case, that's been true. But I think that was the only time that I ever hand wrote a letter to you like I don't think I ever would have sat down and been like oh I'm gonna mail Ali this letter yeah maybe for your birthday or something oh, or like maybe yeah
0: but maybe I wrote you like a really long just knowing myself I can see myself <laughs> writing you like a really long card but yeah, yeah I mean we were we were using email we were using AOL instant messenger yeah. we were texting I think we called maybe once once a week or once every two weeks This book, it's funny because there are some like anachronisms in terms of the communication. There was some mention of like caller ID, which made me laugh. Yeah. And she was like so hyped on the caller ID. So (laughs) excited about caller ID. And she talks about how, like, I think she could have emailed Hope, but she preferred to send uh, an actual letter, which I thought yeah. was
1: interesting. Um, and that was just like the gap, the what is it, six year gap between that and when we met, Yeah, it, it completely fell off. Like, I do think that's probably something you would have done at that time. And it was never something you and I did. No. Uh, but I mean, I do think it was interesting, like, Hope having the context of the school, it was a lot easier for her to keep up with, you know, she didn't have to be like, Sarah is this girl who's this like she already knew who Sarah was right and I found that that was maybe one of the barriers when she was becoming friends with high like not only was she bugging out about her replacing hope in her life but she was like having to go through the motions of explaining who this person was yeah and that's hard like if the, if you've never met them to be emotionally invested in your friend's friend who you don't have the first idea who they are to try to keep up with the like daily minutiae and dramas of this friend group, it's exhausting.
0: <laughs> yeah, and it's a lot of writing, especially like if you are trying to get a letter out every few days and yeah, like, this book exists as it does. and you know, maybe we're not meant to believe that there were all these other letters written. but I can't help but think that there there had to have been like all these other letters to explain yeah. what's happening in between. And something that I'm curious for your opinion on is, would this book have been made better? If we'd gotten responses from hope or is it better just knowing Jessica's side?
1: It's such a good question because I was the thing that's so odd about the book is hope is the crux of the entire story. Like hope is the book, but we never hear from her. Mm -hmm. We have like only quotes or conversations we have with her are like recounted by Jessica. So it's always in the frame of her view and not directly from hope. I don't feel like I know hope at all. From the book I don't know what her taste is I don't know what her hobbies are like we don't know what she likes and dislikes so I mean and, that, and that's so teenage and that's so like myopic of that age of just being like yeah I love my best friend so much but like here's what's going on with me right uh, that's, so that's that's a very good point yeah you don't need to know about her you just need to know that I, I love know her she, yeah like she's my best friend and that's what matters uh-huh. uh, so I would have loved more hope honestly I think that the story probably would have gotten real fucking complicated if Hope, meanwhile, is like, here's what my new school is like. Yeah, that's true. Here's my new friend. And like, here's the boy that I like. But I do think it would have been a fuller, richer character development if we had heard anything more from Hope than we did.
0: Yeah, I found an interview with the author. uh, Well, it was more sort of like a compilation of a few interviews on a website called Forever Young Adult. And one of the readers had written in to ask, why didn't we ever hear from Hope? And was there ever a conversation about there being another book? of letters from hope and I guess there was actually like a series of letters from hope that came before the book um, oh interesting yeah there was a website called twist magazine which sounds like something from the early aughts <laughs> love it love, love it <laughs> and so I guess there was the series of emails published from a girl named hope that Meg McCafferty wrote and that was kind of the jumping off point for sloppy first which is interesting that she then like flipped the perspective and I wonder and I'll have to go back and maybe see if those letters are available somewhere and if they are I'll put them in the show notes but But I wonder if they're a little darker. Like, I wonder if it's more about the experience of watching your brother overdose and and what it means to be the one that actually has to move away because they've dealt with this whole tragedy.
1: Totally. And I mean, I have to wonder and I give hope the benefit of the doubt that this is not the case. But if I were hope and I was getting all these emails or texts or letters from Jessica with like all this bullshit going on. And having just dealt with that, it would be really hard not to be like, "Okay, cool, got it. But like, I don't have time for this right now. (laughs) Like, I am curious how Hope felt about all of Jessica's like daily dramas.
0: All of her like basically bitching constantly. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I also and maybe this is me being really cynical, but I kept wondering, like, has Hope like stopped responding?
1: Oh, interesting. Or has
0: Hope's response level dropped off? It seemed to me that the letters were kind of getting shorter. Yeah. And I wondered if that was supposed to be a clue that, like, maybe Hope didn't have as much to say back to Jessica. And so maybe Jessica didn't have as much to say, like, in her reply. And I also kept thinking, and this is such a sad thought, but I think it's something that we've all dealt with at some point in her life. I kept getting the feeling that Hope was still Jess's best friend. But
1: is Jess still Hope's best friend? I kind of assume not. I mean, it's never it's always better to be the one who leaves than the one who's left behind. So true. You know, she gets to start this new life. She gets to be whoever she wants to be. She can put the tragedy of Heath aside for a little bit and kind of recreate this new life. I think you're so right. Like, she has to move on. Whereas Jessica's, like, stuck in this town that she doesn't like in this school she doesn't like with these friends she doesn't like. So it's, like, really easy for her to romanticize Hope and romanticize their relationship in terms of this is the ultimate and nothing will ever measure up to this.
0: Yeah. And Hope has – it sounds like Hope's gotten to this really cool new private school and is getting yeah. to do more with her art. And obviously Jess can't help but assume that, like, everything in Hope's new town sucks. But it's like <laughs> – You're sucks too. So (laughs) why are you, you know, it's, it's, again, like you were saying, there's so many classic teenage moments. And I think the teenage perceptions of things are so well written because jess is like well i think everything is the worst where i live is the worst where hope lives is is the worst like there's nothing redeeming about any of these situations and i wasn't particularly angsty either as a kid but there were definitely moments where i think you can't help but think like everything's terrible no matter where we go yeah like nobody wins being a teenager is terrible no matter where you live Um, and I think that the author wrote that really well
1: I actually have a a very specific memory of being on the phone with you like our senior year of high school and I had like had a really stressful shift at the high school newspaper and I was like on the steps of my high school with you and just being I like I have it in my head just being like this is like nothing's more stressful than this this is the hardest thing ever and now I'm like that's so embarrassing I was editing a movie review of Mary-Kate Ashley oh my gosh my I remember so that yeah. and I think you would had like a shitty day too and we both were just spiraling being like our lives are so hard
0: I remember calling you from the newspaper office and you had the benefit of time because you were on the west coast and I was on the east coast so yeah. I you know I couldn't like call you in the middle of the day like that because <laughs> it, you it would have been your morning but yeah. it was just such a weird thing because we would met and realized that there were other people in the world who like cared about things the way yeah. that we felt we cared yeah. about them, and that seemed like it was so foreign. And so, having somebody that I could call who would like understand the importance of things happening at the school paper, and and like not thinking that that was stupid, and you know, being able to relate to the struggle of like having to stay after school to like yeah. work on a layout and like dealing yeah. with the annoying other editors, I was like, oh, somebody
1: else cares about that well and I think that that was Jessica's thing with Hope like she felt like everyone else was just so wrapped up in the bullshit and she was like it's one other person who's like smart and interesting and like cares about what I care about and I I do relate to that feeling of there's no one else like this no one else will ever be able to like see me in the way that this person does I hope I tell myself that she went to college and she met other people who were smart and interesting where she went to journalism camp and met other people who were smart and Yeah. (laughs) Yeah,
0: yeah. but hopefully for her sake she did I hope so too so So speaking of friends, we have to talk about these other girls that Jessica (laughs) writes about I honestly don't know where to begin. I have a lot of feelings <laughs> about these girls that she refers to as the Clueless Crew. So quick rundown of the Clueless Crew. The Clueless Crew includes Bridget, who was Jessica's like first best friend, which I think is an interesting concept in itself. You know, your childhood best friends being the people that lived across the street and had the same dolls as you, but not being able to understand you the way that your teenage friends do. Sarah, who's like the rich girl in town, whose dad owns all of the businesses, and she has some annoying habits. She does the whole like quote unquote thing all the time. She I totally a, forgot about quote unquote. That really brought me back. Quote unquote is the literally of the early aughts.
1: 100%,
0: 100%. And I think probably in five years, I will be so embarrassed for using the word literally as much literally. as I do now. And now it's captured on a podcast. So that's great. Sarah also says, Oh my God a lot. And it's spelled like, Oh my God. So that's why I'm going to say it like that. Cause I, I oh, my think God. It's, oh my God. <laughs> And then there's Manda, who is, I hate to even use these words, they refer to her as like the kissing slut. She like doesn't have sex with anybody, but she makes out with everybody. And the three of them are best pals and, and Hope and Jess were always kind of like on the outside of that group but they hung out together they sit at lunch together now that hope is gone uh jessica's feelings about the clueless crew is really starting to change and she's starting to see them very differently so i went back and forth because there were moments where i felt like jess was being so unfair to them and so mean to them and then there were moments where i was like they're actually terrible like what's your take on that
1: bridget was the most interesting person for me to reconnect with because i remember at the time being like ugh (laughs) Brilliant, like she's so annoying, so blonde and and beautiful and perfect, like it's so resentful. And I remember, I mean, we've all been there of having like friends that you pick up in first or second grade and then kind of trying to figure out how you adapt and develop and become a human being with them by your side. So I did relate to that at the time, but now I look back on it and I'm like, you know what, like. Bridget's pretty great Bridget was the one who I kind of was relating to even more than Jessica Bridget's normal she like has career aspirations she has this boyfriend who turns out sucks but she I thought got an unfair shake I felt like she was really Jessica was really resentful of her because of things like oh my mom likes her or she's beautiful or you know she seems to have her life together so that I was like you're being a bitch like why are you being so mean
0: to Yeah. It? Well, in the end, Bridget ends up being, like, such a redeemable and a redeemed character because she comes back and realizes that she screwed up her friendship with Jessica and, like, apologizes. And I think as an adult, you're like, wow, people don't really do that. I mean, yeah. even now people don't do that. So I'm like, Bridget was actually, like, a really evolved junior in high school for having the knowledge that that was the right thing to do
1: totally agreed and that she just didn't torture herself over everything that she was kind of like you know what Sarah and Manda suck fuck them and I don't really care like it wasn't a whole big thing for her she just kind of came to the light and was like okay I don't need this in my life anymore like it's not worth it Sarah and Amanda so first of all like who is named Amanda Amanda Man. like really I, that in and of itself I was like you can tell from the name that like you're going to be a bad character yeah we're supposed <laughs> to find her annoying like from jump she actually bothered me more than Sarah, but because of the Burke incident.
0: I think so, that's true. So as a little bit of context for listeners, while Bridget is away for the summer pursuing her modeling career, which is so badass and cool of her, <laughs> Amanda, who again has prided herself on making out with everybody but sleeping with nobody, decides that she should sleep with Bridget's
1: boyfriend, Burke, and try to keep it a secret loyalty to me is like the number one thing and that just bothered me so much because sleep with whoever you want kiss whoever you want i don't care but the fact that she decided to do that with her supposed friend's boyfriend while her friend was out of town And by proxy, put Sarah and Jessica in this like really shitty situation where they knew this was happening and had to either betray Bridget by not telling her or like stir shit by telling her. And that I was just like, all right, you're the worst. Like, I have no time for you. Sarah, I could like get on board with. Like, there were things about her where I was like, okay, you're a normal teenage girl. You have some shitty qualities. You have some normal qualities. Like, I I can excuse you. But Amanda just really grinded my gears. Yeah. Sarah felt almost
0: like a plot device more than anything. Like we needed to have Sarah to be Amanda's sidekick. We needed to have Sarah to in some ways be comic relief and like say silly things and like back Amanda up. In situations where Jessica was going to be ganged up
1: on. Sarah was such a narrative device as well because she was the one that so that the author wouldn't have to write so-and-so and 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 so-and-so dated last year. And then they broke up like Sarah would tell us all of that over lunch as she was gossiping.
0: (laughs) Yep. And Sarah's dad got everybody jobs. So we got to skip the part where it would have been like, oh, I'm going to go get a job interview for the summer. Like. Sarah was there to kind of move things along quickly that would have been boring to read. And she's also a bit of like a gossip. So we find out a lot of news through Sarah in the way that (laughs) high school gossips always do. Do you think that Jessica is too judgmental? Like, is she being condescending? Does it verge a little bit on like the idea of girl on girl crime that we
1: hear about in Mean Girls? I think she is probably just as judgmental as I was slash am. You know, no one wants To be that person, and no one like likes that side of themselves. But it's one of those things where I was like, if I was in that situation, I would probably be feeling the same way. It's really easy to sit back and be like, okay, if you hate these people so much, like stop being friends with them. But at one point in the book, after everything blows up with Bridget and Burke and Amanda, she's sitting alone, and I mean, I get that. Like at a certain point, you're like, okay, this is my only option. Like. I'm just going to have to sit with these people I hate and bitch about them in my journal every night. Yeah. I think the condescension is something different, though. <clears throat> One thing I did wonder about in the book, and I'm curious if you felt similarly, like there were certain things where it was hard for me to believe that a teenager or a young teenager was having these thoughts and references and views on high school life. Like She was not down for like any of the tomfoolery of high school. She had no time for homecoming. She had no time for like being a normal teen. I don't know if it was an act, but it was hard for me to totally believe that she was just like above it all. There were moments when
0: I felt that way in high school. I like definitely didn't go to certain dances because I was going through a time where I like wasn't vibing with my friends. And like, you know, I went to a lot of dances alone, and I was fine with that. Or, you know, I would like make a big scene about turning down invitations to dances (laughs) because I was like, I don't want to go with somebody that I am not excited about. I definitely like skipped out on things on the principle of like, I'd rather be alone than deal with like the BS that I'm expected to participate in. So I have to say that like I was part of that condescension (laughs) at times, but I always kind of came back to it. Yeah. And it was never a permanent thing. It was more just like a a one-off situation of like this time and this moment and this event, like I, you know, I'm too cool for it. it. Not worth it. I think that Jessica is so smart and she definitely understands that there's like a bigger world outside of Pineville and that obviously plays into it. It is hard for me the way that she like talks about some of the girls in her circle. She really has nothing nice to say about them, which I don't remember feeling that way when I read it as a kid and now reading it back. There's nothing that she seems to like about Sarah and Manda in particular.
1: Yeah. No, 100%. And I mean, even that, like the simple fact of writing those things down really stressed me out because I kept waiting because I couldn't totally remember everything. And I kept waiting for someone to find her journal, burn book style from Mean Girls. I was like, someone's going to see this and this is going to be a problem. And she made some mention early on in the book of like, oh, who reads this? Like just me. But Having the audacity to not only think those things, but to put them in print really stressed me out because it just felt like so permanent and so real. And it's like, you must really, really hate your friends if you're going that far. Yeah. You hate your friends. (laughs) You (laughs) hate them. I mean, I know she had hope, but it did make me sad that she was like going through her high school experience with these people who she just had such utter disdain for.
0: Yeah. And, you know, she didn't have a great, great relationship with her parents. Like, it's not like she had any other than hope who, again, because we don't get Hope's side of the story. It's hard to say, like, exactly what the true two way nature of that relationship was. It made me sad. I felt like she didn't have a confidant. She wasn't like experiencing life with anyone either at school or in her family. And that was sad. She had no outlet. Yeah, which obviously feeds into like a lot of the angstiness that we read about. And um, I would be anxious now to go back and reread the second and third books because I I don't know that I ever made it to the fourth, but I think I read the second and the third. I'd be anxious to go back now and reread those and see if I feel like she ends up with those kinds of outlets because I think that would make her a little bit realer to me now.
1: Yeah, that to me also was why the stuff with boys was so significant to her because I think she was craving that and kind of saw this hypothetical boyfriend as an opportunity for that.
0: Yeah, so thank you for that transition because there's a <laughs> lot of good boy talk in this book. There's four primary love interests, pseudo love interests, people that are interested Dukes. in Jessica, key male players at school. So I'll run through them really quick. Um, I'm going to say the name of each one and I want you to give me like your, uh, let's let's play like word association. So I'm going to give you the okay. name and like you tell me what you think about them. Okay, so Scotty, who is is jess's like longtime friend who is like the cool guy at school he's the captain of all the sports teams and he seems to have this
1: undying love for her
0: and she is just not interested
1: he to me is like the blonde platonic ideal of like every teen movie like he's Freddie prince jr but blonde somehow in my brain (laughs) yeah i see that Uh uh-huh he as an adult I'm like, he's the one that got away, he's exactly who you should be with. I do see him as a little like in my head he's a little bumbling because he's not quite figured out that he's a sexy football guy yet. I think he's very, like, man on the cusp, <laughs> like, figuring out that he's going to be this, like, big man on campus. And I guess I also see him as well-intentioned but misguided. He makes choices later on where you're like, Scotty, what are you doing? But you can tell at the end of the day that he has a good heart. He's
0: definitely going to go join, like, the nice guy frat in college. Yeah. Yeah. He's going to hang out with my boyfriend and Allie's husband. Yeah. And gonna he, be, like, he's the gonna nice be, guys. Right. Yeah. He's going to be just fine. Like, he'll figure <laughs> it out. This too shall I'll pass. yeah constantly rejected scotty it's going to be okay the second guy is paul parlopiano and i think that's how we say his last name but he is the boy that jess is like head over heels in love with he's on the track team with her he's older and she just like can't say enough about how much he is the one who is deserving of her virginity
1: so in a funny twist one of the very few people in my and ali's Journalism camp actually had the last name Parlopiano. Shout out Amy Parlopiano. You're so right. So that and it, that was taking me back because I was like, perfect timing that we're reading this book with our shared friend Amy Parlopiano. I, I don't have, about hi Amy. I, I didn't
0: forget about you, Amy. I just forgot that your last name was Parlopiano.
1: I don't think they're related,
0: but who can say? Who knows? Uh, That's because it's not like a common name either. Oh, right no. Shout out to Amy. Hope all is well.
1: <laughs> he yeah. He to me was very like dark and brooding and handsome. It was interesting. We didn't get a ton of details about him besides the fact that he was a dreamboat and later the fact that he turned out to be interested in men and not women. I mean, I feel like everyone has that guy. He's the guy that like, you have absolutely no rhyme or reason for liking this person. Like you've had no interactions with them. They're not necessarily even like the cutest person in the school, but for some reason, they are the object of every thought that you have and all of your longings. And we all had that person in high school where you're just like, oh, my God, he's everything like my whole world. Right. Revolves. Everything and more. But I don't think I had many traits for him because we didn't really get any details about him.
0: No, I. I mean, there is that whole moment where Jess gets drunk and throws up on his shoes, and there were a lot of parallels between this book and Mean Girls. Yeah, that was one oh, yeah, of them. Word vomit. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah, he, you know, she has word vomit. She throws up on his shoes. He's really nice about it, of course, just like Aaron Samuels was. I loved that he ended up coming out when he went to yeah. school. I thought it was a really cool twist that, like, the hot cool guy was actually interested in men. I think at this age when I read it, it was probably really important for me to like read about a gay character period and for it to be somebody who presented as like this very kind of mainstream, Mm -hmm. confident guy on campus. Like, I think that's important for kids to read and to understand that like, you know, there's not necessarily this stereotypical high school kid who's like in the theater department. You know, it's nice for there to be a character in a book that doesn't fit into those stereotypes.
1: And I think she handled it really well. It wasn't like, oh my God, the scandal that rocked everything It was in Jessica's head because they were supposed to get married and that ruined everything for her. But the town itself seemed to roll with it and be like, all right, Paul, like, that's fine, good for you. But yeah, very much agreed. I think, I can't really remember another book from that age of my life where there was just like an extremely casually gay character.
0: Yeah, I think that's probably true. It was probably one of the first times that I read about anybody being gay, period. Yeah. The next <laughs> the next guy character is my personal favorite. I'm I don't really know if we ever got his real name. He goes by Pierre in French class. Jessica calls him Pepe Le Pew, because he is like head over heels in love for her. She jokingly says at one point that she is Paul's Pepe Le Pew, because she sees the way that Pierre talks to her, the way she talks to Paul. He's like this really sweet freshman in her French class who like shows up at all these hilarious moments. He's an Elvis impersonator. He like plays this really hilarious role on the boardwalk. He kind of does all these like characters. He's really funny and likable.
1: And I just, I loved him. He's so charming. He's so likable. She says at one point he comes back from the summer or comes back from some break and he's all of a sudden like kind of hot and beefy and has a new girlfriend. Part of me was waiting to see. I couldn't remember if she ended up with him. So part of me was like, oh, is she going to date Pepe? I wanted her to. I was like, this guy's going to be good for you. You're tense and stressed and he is fun and chill and interesting. And I felt like he would have really balanced her. There was something about him that was just totally, totally likable. I loved him. I feel like he got really hot in the sequels. I don't
0: think that this was the end of the line for Pepe. I think he came back around. Yeah, and I think he continued to be on the rise. Like he, yeah, yeah he he a hasn't man on his way up. Yeah, he hasn't peaked yet in Sloppy no. First. And I loved him and I I wanted more of him. And again, like if I were to reread the sequels, I would hope that there would be more Pepe. And
1: I'm I'm like somewhat convinced in the way that, you know, Scotty's going to go join his nice boy and like, you know, probably get a nice job in banking and continue his life. I feel like Pepe is, like, going to be Channing Tatum. Like, I feel like Pepe is going to, like, become a star and become this huge guy, and Jessica the Darling is going to regret never having given him a chance.
0: I hope so, because he was my favorite character, potentially, like, period, in the <clears throat> whole book. So finally, we get to Marcus Fleury. <laughs> blah. Blah. I think we both have some complicated feelings about Marcus. <laughs> Marcus ultimately ends up being kind of, like, the central love interest of the book. He starts off, as part of the group that Jessica refers to as the dregs. He has dreadlocks. He was part of Heath's drug-centered group. There's implication that he was, like, kind of tangentially involved in Heath's overdose, which is, like, very complicated later in the book. And the first interaction that Jess and Marcus really have is when he asks her to pee in a yogurt cup so that he doesn't get in trouble for smoking pot at school.
1: Even furthermore, there's all these implications that he's sleeping around with girls and not in a way because he's a horny dude that needs an outlet for that, but in a way that he doesn't necessarily think very highly of women and doesn't necessarily think that that's an important thing or something he needs to be careful about. And is doing it to pass time, doing it to get a reputation. He seems to want everything associated with him to be seen as like edgy and dark and like so cool. And he, to me, was the ultimate person of reading it as an adult you just want to shake him and be like, you're not cool. You're so annoying. Like, what are you doing? Yeah. And I remember as a kid being like, okay, I kind of get it. Like, he's like a badass. I see it. I see it. And It's so annoying to me now. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
0: You could picture like, I remember being like, I know I can picture what he smells like. Oh my God. Yeah. He's. I smell the smoke. He's wearing like an Abercrombie thrift store jacket with like <laughs> patches on it. I don't think I knew what dreadlocks were at the time. So like, I was like, oh. Oh, he has red dreadlocks. I grew up in Seattle, so I I
1: saw my fair share of dreadlocks. <laughs> I was very familiar with the dreadlock. But I do, there's something very cultural about the time of that too. Like it was right around Eminem era. So this whole like white boys and hip hop thing, I think was accepted in a way that now we see as cultural appropriation. Mm. And as we see as a little more complicated than just being like I'm white boy from suburban Philly and now I'm like or, I don't even know are they in Pennsylvania in my head they are they're at the Jersey Shore which I love as a
0: Jersey Shore goer myself one of my favorite <laughs> things about this book is the scenes of the boardwalk and the mentions of like all of the you know the grease that she, is covered in after she comes back from her shift. I I just love that she worked on the boardwalk and she talked about like the cotton candy stands and the funnel cake. Yeah, I've spent every summer of my life there. So I was very drawn to that, especially because it's not a setting that you read about much. So totally, you know, total side note. But I will say one of the highlights of this book for me was the setting because I could picture a lot of it in my head.
1: I've never been to the shore. So I think I was subbing in Coney Island.
0: Because that was like
1: my only reference point, which I'm sure is probably a different vibe than the Jersey Shore.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'll just say for everyone, there's a lot of different kinds of Jersey Shore. <laughs> and it's not all like the reality show. I, I feel like the setup for this book skews a little bit more MTV than like the Jersey Shore that I know. But I, I love the
1: Jersey Shore. So there. if you haven't been, all everybody should day. go. Marcus sucks. Not into him. Hard pass. <laughs>
0: How did we feel when Marcus came back? So Marcus is caught. Jess's peeing in the yogurt cup, does not save his his ass from being kicked out of school because they find out that it was a girl. They're luckily not able to trace it back to her, but... Duh, they can tell from like the proteins or the hormones in the urine sample that it's not Marcus's pee. That was stressing me out so much because I remember being like, they're going to know it's you. Like, they're going to know it's a girl. It was, that's so dumb. Like, I'm sure he'd given a lot of urine samples before. (laughs) Just try and tell me he didn't know that somebody would find out it wasn't
1: his. Right, right. So <laughs> like, stupid. find the dude. Find the guy.
0: I did totally relate to one of the quotes that, that was in that section, because he asks her to give the sample, and as, like, the goody two-shoes that I was in high school— I really related to Jess because she agreed to do it because she kind of was like tired of doing what everybody expected her to do. So I highlighted this quote where she says, I was so tired of everyone telling me what I would and should and could do and not do. My parents, the clueless crew, and now Marcus. Anger that had been simmering inside me for months, years, my whole life boiled over and spilled out all over Marcus.
1: I, I, that was definitely an opportunity for her to like be this other person. And I remember like I have memories of being like <laughs> this like whole internal dialogue when I was in high school where I was like, I need to be someone who says yes to things and regrets it rather than says no to things and regrets it. Because I was always saying no, like I was always like, oh, no, I won't go to this party or like. No, I won't do this bad thing. And then I would spend days being absolutely tortured about the fact that I hadn't done the thing that was like scary or bad or wrong, much to my parents' pleasure. But I, I had that total same feeling of being like, okay, yeah, like I'm gonna do this, and like maybe I'll be bad later, but like I'm gonna be the person who says yes to the scary thing.
0: Yeah, I'm gonna pee in the cup when my husband asks me to. I'll be women who pee in the cup. <laughs> yes, rah rah to that. <laughs> so Marcus comes back from I think he was he in like a juvenile detention center or he was like in military school. It's kind of yeah, unclear. Was, yeah, super unclear. And it felt
1: like a kind of a plot hole to be honest. Because I was like, where has this dude been? And is he now like hardened from jail? Like what happened?
0: Right. Were they right. dealing with his issues? Yeah. Beyond just realizing that he was a genius. I guess they gave him some IQ tests. They realized he's so smart. They send him back to school and they put him in honors classes. And so now Jess has the opportunity to have this like new kind of relationship with him. What did you think of new Marcus? He comes back, he's clean cut, he ironically is wearing like button-down shirts and ties to school. He's dating a new girl named Mia. And now he and Jess, to, to sort of fast forward, end up having these like nightly conversations about everything and anything. And it's kind of like a weird little relationship. What did you think about that new version of Marcus?
1: I felt like he was reframed in that way to make him more palatable to Jess, but also to us. Because we couldn't, I don't think we could quite get on board or it wasn't quite realistic that drag smelly Marcus would be Jessica Darling's mans of the moment. Um, So to me, it felt really, really strategic, if not necessarily believable. I was like, okay, this guy doesn't give a shit. He's not going to care if people make fun of him for his suit. like That I took but it didn't seem like he actually changed that much in who he was. He did stop. It sounded like he stopped doing drugs as much and he stopped sleeping with all the ladies, but it was hard for me to totally believe that he had become this new person.
0: Yeah. And I thought that even to the extent that he had become this new person, he was so condescending again. Yeah. And and maybe the condescension was what resonated with Jess because I see her as a bit condescending herself, but he is so self-important about being smart and he has all these, like, philosophies on life and the fact that sex and drugs are just a way to, like, experiment and explore and being a teenager is all about experimentation and exploration. Like, I get that as a teenager and as a teenage reader, those things all feel really exciting. And now reading it back, I'm like, I think that you are just kind of an asshole who's coming back from this, basically, like, brush with the law and acting like you know everything. And like you said, you know, maybe he feels like he's been hardened by the wider world doesn't read as endearing to me as an adult whereas a teenager I think it did I felt like there's this wise guy who understands things about the world that just doesn't and wants to but now I'm like I think that you might even be a little controlling like he wants to control the way she sees things he ends up controlling the way she interacts with the clueless crew and I think he oversteps his bounds in a lot of ways. I think that's so true.
1: And he, the thing that was so interesting is he shows no remorse. His friend Odeed, and you don't get the impression at all that he's even sad about it. And you have to assume he is. Just the idea that he becomes this new person and stops all these things theoretically, you would be like, okay. You're doing this because you see the error of your ways and you feel sad about it or you feel regretful. And it seemed like he was like, oh, that was just a phase. And now I'm in this new phase. (laughs) Like this is just who I am now. And I do think the control aspect is really interesting. As an adult, you look at him and you're like, you're pretty problematic. You're a red flag for sure.
0: Yeah. And not even just in the way of like being somebody who used to do drugs and has had sex, like all of those things I can totally get past. The way that he is manipulating Jess's feelings about school and about people like I think her parents and her friends would have every right to be concerned about her hanging out with him and again not because he did drugs or you know he might want to sleep with her like I just think he might not have her best interests at heart.
1: Well, and there was like, they got into this habit of talking on the phone every night, late at night, and there was one situation in which they didn't. And he seemed to get like really annoyed or angry about the fact that they hadn't. So even that kind of control of, I expect you to be here for me when I want you to, is a little worrying. Yeah. And the other complicated thing about Marcus,
0: and we mentioned this briefly, is that Jess doesn't tell Hope that she's communicating with him until the very end of the book and that's because again there's this sense that because heath and marcus were friends marcus was in some way responsible for heath dying how did you feel about that being this whole secret between them especially because we don't know that much about hope like i don't get a sense that i know how she would take something like that was it okay for jessica to kind of like wait that out and see how it would end up or did you feel like from the get-go that was a problem that she was betraying hope in that way
1: i think it was a problem because she had framed hope and framed their relationship it's like we're best friends we tell each other everything like she's the only one who understands either that's true or it's not and if it is you have to give her the chance to be okay with it or you have to give her the chance to at least like know that this is happening and if i were hope like I'd be pissed. And not only because he was associated with her brother's death, but because this thing's been going on in your life for however many months and you didn't even think to mention it once. To me, that was also like Jessica implicitly felt like she was doing something wrong. Like if she was totally above board about it and totally was feeling good about it, I think she would have told him. So that also was like, okay, you're not feeling super confident about this relationship that you're in. And I mean, I don't know if we want to like get into this plot thing, but it comes out down the line... That he had originally started talking to Jessica in the first place because he would eavesdrop on her conversations with Hope while he was in the next room hanging out with Heath. That to me is also really manipulative and kind of shitty that you're like have complete ulterior motives. Like he's not just like, Oh, you're interesting. He's like, Oh, I know things about you and you don't know that I know things. It felt almost um, she's all of that mm. where it's like, you think this person is chasing you romantically because They want you, but there's all this backstory that, like, you're just not privy to in the least.
0: He's just a creep. And I think the complicated thing about him being a creep is that in some ways we're supposed to believe that he's not. Yeah. We're supposed to be able to, like, see past things that might have been problematic for him in the past and to believe that he's, like, this redeemed figure But he's a creep, and again, it has nothing to do with his past and his, like, extracurricular interests. It's because he's done things like eavesdrop on Jessica and then try to become friends with her and, like, manipulate her feelings about Heath and Hope, like... Those things make him a creep way more than the fact that he used to do drugs and has
1: supposedly had sex with like 36 girls. Well, yeah, Uh, that to me was like the biggest red flag because you you get the impression that everyone at the school is like partying a little bit. And like, I mean, Jessica herself is like wasted enough that she's puking on Paul. Not to me that he's like getting fucked up on the weekends. It's that he's really intense and kind of scary. (laughs)
0: Yeah, I totally agree. He's a creep. Um, I'm just going to say that, even though that's probably not the Verdict is creep. This just in, he's a creep. One other kind of overarching theme that I want to talk to you about, because I'm especially interested in your thoughts, before we come to the end of this conversation, is the way that the book talks about sex and sexuality and gender and like all of these very complicated themes. There's a lot about sex in this book. I found a quote from Megan McCafferty, It's a little bit long, but I'm going to read it. She says, Jessica's virginity was an important aspect of her character at that stage in her life. I thought it would be more entertaining if she were more of a caustic observer than participant in teenage debauchery. It also gave her room to grow, and readers get to see how her attitude about lust and love changes from the start of sloppy firsts to the end of second helpings. I never included sex, drugs, and four-letter words gratuitously for shock value. My goal was to depict high school life as it truly was, not how many adults wanted it to be. Ironically, to depict teenagers realistically, Sloppy Firsts had to be published as adult fiction, not young adult. And I think that last line probably speaks to who ended up publishing the book. Yeah. Because maybe she tried to have it published by like a children's imprint and it didn't work out that way. I think that there's a lot of really complicated messages about sexuality in this book. And I can't decide for myself if I think that that's a good or a bad thing. I think there's a part of it that gives teenagers kind of a lot of information to process and to think about and to decide how they feel and where they stand on a lot of these things. But at the same time, is it leaving the door open for people to like have unhealthy views about section sex and gender. One quote that I found really upsetting that Jessica says about the whole controversy when Burke cheats on Bridget with Manda, she says, I know this is sexist and totally supports the stud whore double standard for guys and girls and all, but I'm more mad at Manda than Burke. I mean, it's a given that guys don't have as much self-control as girls. They can't help but pop Insta-chubbies which is like gross. Sorry. Gross, I yeah. <laughs> but how psychologically messed up is Manda? She refuses to have sex with any of her own boyfriends, then snakes her best friend's man. I never liked Manda much. But now I, I can't look at her without wanting to hose her down with Lysol stuff like that. It just bothers me when it's in a book that's going to be read by teens. And again, is that like good food for thought so that readers can like decide for themselves? Or is it? Too confusing.
1: Yeah, I think, I mean, that's such a good question. I think it's one of those things where it totally depends on the time and place in which you're reading it. So we see that now and we're like, problematic as fuck. Like, why are you talking about that? Because it's, I always have a hard time for backstory. My family has always been, quote unquote, if, if I can borrow a Sarahism in the media and uh, newspaper and general communications have always been very important to me. But it's always been really tough for me to blame the media for depictions of things and children's upbringing and the way that they see the world. In this case, I think you're right. It's one of those things where, like, of course, if they hadn't read this book, there's going to be some part of their life where they get the idea that sleeping around for a guy, good. Sleeping around for a girl, bad. You know, this isn't the only outlet that that's going to come to them. However, because the book is so frank and because it is so kind of honest about Life and about what teenagers are seeing, it almost raises the stakes, I think, because she's super honest and super interesting, comes at things in a super interesting way that a lot of other books didn't. And why it stuck with me 20 years later, because I remember being like, Yeah, like I know about sex, and like my parents don't know that I do, I didn't, but in my mind, I did. And that to me, like, I felt very seen in that way. So, yeah, I think that that's problematic. I will say, aside from the Burke incident, pre-Burke, I didn't hate the depiction of Amanda because I did feel like there was some acknowledgement of female sexuality in her. Hmm. She wasn't doing it to be liked. If anything, she knew she was disliked because of it. She wasn't doing it to try to, like, find a long-term boyfriend. She just felt like making out with dudes. So she did. That I actually kind of felt positively about. I do think that for better or for worse, teenagers, boys or girls or anywhere in between are thinking about sex. Often and maybe all the time, <laughs> and whether they've experienced it or not, because you're seeing it. And I remember it being a thing of like, who's lost their virginity and like, how and to whom and this, that and the next thing. So I think that that was accurate. I don't feel like it was introducing anything that teenagers weren't experiencing already.
0: Yeah, I think that's fair. I think that she clearly set out to have this very honest portrayal of of sex and drinking and drugs to an extent in a high school environment. I think that for the most part it was great because it gave kids like a sense of this like wide spectrum of what kids high schoolers yeah. are doing and not doing and and that you know there's not necessarily like a wrong way to be and like there it wasn't very um it wasn't particularly like condemning of anything I would no. say I just think other there were Brooke. other than the Brooke Manda situation I just think there were like a few passages that were a little bit dicey, like the one I read, that get a little, like, sexist, that get a little bit, that get a little bit sticky in terms of, like, the kinds of mess. I think, like you said, because everything else is so frank, to, like, throw in a passage or two like that, it's a little problematic.
1: One well, that felt like such a, like, YM era reading of those kind of situations to me because the simple fact that she's saying hey this is sexist that in of itself at the time is a little radical you know it's that of the 14 year old 15 year old whatever she is knows about sexism recognizes her own internal bias and talks about it that's much more than we probably saw before I do think that like not all books were talking about sex and talking about sleeping around but there were framing of gender issues without acknowledgement in books that I read as a teen um, so I did appreciate that that this. Least acknowledge that it was shitty of her, but would have been much better if she hadn't said it in the first place.
0: Yeah, it opens the door, which I think is sometimes all that we can ask for, for sure. Yeah, agreed. So, mm. overall, has this experience made you love this book even more, or has it ruined it for you?
1: I will say I sped through it, I read it in like two days. I feel <laughs> Growing up sucks, like being old sucks, because I read it now. And I'm like, the horrors like I was 12 and just reading about these things. And mm-hmm. that's so like, it's so hard not to be like, these teens shouldn't be reading this. But if I can take a step back, I think I love it even more. I'm definitely going and getting the second and third books because I need to remember what happened. And I need to like vomit over Marcus Flutie a little more. It's one of these things I was thinking about, like, because we were talking about whether you would recommend it. I don't know if I could recommend it to a teen without making it so awkward. Like, that's the biggest thing for me. That's true. I could, like, I couldn't be like, go read this book. And then they're reading it. And it's like all these things. and They can't talk to me about it. Um, they're like Maddie said, Maddie said, I would love it. <laughs> Aunt Maddie really thinks I should read about heroin. But I think that if anyone was like, oh, I read this, I'd be like, amazing. I loved it. Let's talk about it. It's a very unique and I think great book. On the whole.
0: I agree. I enjoyed it. It definitely was more complicated the second time around. But I liked reading it from a different perspective. I think the wisdom of the additional years that I've now lived has like, maybe made it more confusing, but it hasn't yeah. ruined it for me. So we've come to the end of our sloppy first chat. I think we probably could go on for a few <laughs> more hours. There's a lot of things we didn't touch on. But maybe we'll just have to do a second volume on this book, a second episode.
1: Sloppy seconds. Sloppy
0: seconds. Exactly. With (laughs) Maddie Bordman all over again. Uh, Before we sign off, I'd love if you could maybe share a recommendation of a book that you're reading now or that you read recently that you think our listeners should know about.
1: Yeah. So hopefully no one else has given you this, but Allie and I, spoiler alert, are in a book club together because we're that cool. We're 20-somethings living in New York City who meet every month to talk about books and drink wine. But one of the books that we've read for our book club that I cannot stop talking about and truly cannot stop thinking about is The Immortalist. It was just so good. And I recommended it to my boyfriend, to my parents, to like anyone who will listen. Similar to Sloppy First It's a type of story that I've never really read. Otherwise, not in terms of structure, because it's very kind of like, you know, diverging paths of a family coming in and out. But it's like a little mystical, but not in a normal like wizards, dragons way. And just is a great reflection on life. And I could not recommend it enough.
0: Yes, I echo that. It's a great book. I will include a link to buy that in the show notes. I'll also include a link as usual to the book we discussed, Sloppy Firsts, in the show notes. I want to thank Maddie so much for coming to talk about sloppy first with me. It was so fun having you and maybe we'll have you back sometime.
1: Sounds good. I'll see you at book club. Yeah.
0: Thank you so much. I'll (laughs) talk to you soon. All right. Bye. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR podcast.